Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road Church. Um, yes, my name is Dylan. I do like to drink a good cup of coffee. Um, and I bring you greetings from Belmont. We're just down the street here. I do serve at Beacon Community Church. And I just wanted to let you guys know that we are your partners. We are your cheerleaders in this work of worshiping and uh, sharing Jesus together. Uh, it is a, it's a blessing to me to be able to uh, come here and worship with you uh, today. Uh, I'm excited to, uh, to dive into this text. Uh, thank you, Marie, for reading that for us this morning. Um, but before we get there, I just have to say I love the, just the title of this sermon series called The Portraits of Jesus. Uh, I've recently been immersed in studying church history. I'm a seminary student, uh, and I just couldn't help myself uh, but to bring a quote from one of the key figures of the uh, Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Uh, Desiderius Erasmus was one of the early Renaissance humanists who really opened up uh, the way for us to read the Bible in our native tongue today. So we read the Bible in English. Praise God that we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, before his period of time, the Bible was mostly just read in Latin. Uh, this was the language of the high clergy and academics of the time. And when he first opened up the text of Scripture, he read it in a brand new way and wanted to make it available to anyone and everyone to be able to read it and to learn who Jesus was. And when he held up the text of Scripture, he said this about the pages that he read and the, and the pages that we're going to read today. He said this, these holy pages will give you Christ. They will give you him in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. So these pages of Scripture give us Christ, and so much so that we receive him in an even more intimate way than if he was here with us physically. How amazing is that, that we have this opportunity today? Uh, so this morning, uh, we want to experience this intimate nearness of Jesus as we open up his word and see a portrait of him in John 14, uh, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to camp out today. So if you do have your Bibles, I do encourage you to open those up and to go there with me. Um, as you are turning there, for those of you that do have a Bible, I just want to orient us to the context of this passage. So we're just parachuting in to John, I know that, so I just want to give you uh, some bearings as to where we are in this passage. Um, at the beginning of John 14, it's, it's the beginning of what people might call, people have called the farewell discourse. So from John chapter 14 all the way to chapter 17, uh, these are, this is the final day and the final teachings of Jesus to the 11 disciples just before he was betrayed and uh, taking his road to the cross. Now, the purpose of these chapters is to unpack the significance of Jesus' departure before it actually comes. So, the purpose of Jesus' burial, his death, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, and the consequent coming of the Holy Spirit uh, can be found in these chapters. Okay, I'm not going to reread those for us because uh, we just had someone do that. But uh, as you are there, I'm going to track through this uh, 
verse by verse, and we're going to see what uh, the Bible has for us to tell about Jesus. So today, I have three main points to highlight. I'll give them to you now and repeat them later. Uh, The first one, uh, and just all of these, they're related to a phrase that Jesus says about himself in verse one. You'll notice they all have to do with trusting Jesus. These are basically three ways uh, to trust him and three ways that I believe this text tells us to trust him. Okay, so the first one is to trust Jesus to calm your heart. We see that in verse one. Uh, ver- uh, number two, uh, trust Jesus to prepare your place. We see this in verse two and three. And trust Jesus as your only way to God. So number one, trust Jesus to calm your heart. Verse one, Jesus opens up and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Guys, we don't even have to mine the text for some deep spiritual truth to understand what Jesus is telling us here. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus says to you, trust me with your troubles. He's saying to you, I want to untrouble your heart. See, Jesus wants this to be a reality in your life. Now, there are all kinds of things which can trouble our hearts, aren't there? There's financial troubles, family troubles, health troubles, if you're a student, educational troubles, Uh, On a spiritual level, there's troubles with sin and anxiety and guilt, and the list can go on and on, but plainly and simply today, know this, Jesus desires for your hearts to be completely untroubled. Now, I I personally know many people who have the same desire. The problem is, uh, they have no power to carry it out. Uh, Over the past year, I think I've watched more public addresses than ever in my life uh, related to the coronavirus and other things, but uh, people like the President of the United States, uh, the Governor of Massachusetts, uh, the Queen of England, uh, the Mayor of Boston, different local officials and all that, and you know, I don't think I've heard a single one of them say what Jesus says here related to the troubles going on in our world. Not one of them has said, let not your hearts be troubled. Why is that? Now, they they might or might not have the desire to untrouble your hearts, for one, but even if they did desire it, they have no power to carry out that desire. Only Jesus has that kind of power for you and for me today. Okay, so let's let's dive into the text here, and I want to ask the question, at this point, why would Jesus say that to the disciples? Why would the disciples be troubled at this point? I mentioned earlier that uh, this section of John are the moments that Jesus is spending with the disciples before his departure, including his journey to the cross. Now, we have the benefit of knowing, now we're reading this text, we have the benefit of knowing that these disciples would ultimately stick with Jesus. We know the end of the story. Uh, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies there, but yet he is raised again and resurrected, right? We know the end of the story. But from the immediately preceding verses and At this moment in time, the disciples were understandably troubled. 
Uh, consider these verses, which are just immediately prior to the, the ones that we have here. Uh, John 13, 21. Uh, Jesus promised that one of the disciples would betray him. They were all kind of confused as to who this was. Uh, we know that Judas is the one who would betray Jesus and turn him into the hands of the officials. Um, and at this point, Judas is gone by the time of our text, but the disciples are nonetheless, they're still perplexed and even troubled that this was going to happen. So they're, they're troubled in this way. Uh, consider John 13, 33. Jesus told them that he was leaving them. Now, this is the Jesus who they knew and loved dearly, and he just told them that he's going to leave them. This left them troubled. And he also told them that they couldn't come to where he was going. They're troubled by this. Consider John 13, verses 36 to 38. Peter steps up and says, uh, Jesus, I want to come with you to where you're going. And he, he even offers to lay down his life for Jesus. Yet, during this same passage, Jesus foretells that Peter is one who's going to deny Jesus three times that very day. For the disciples, this meant that the leader among them was going to deny Jesus. So it's understandable that the disciples are confused. They're even threatened at the warnings that Jesus has given to them. So how then does Jesus calm the anxious hearts of these disciples? How is he going to calm these disciples who are, who are anxious and troubled? Look at what he does at the end of verse 1. He points them to himself. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. You see, the calm of their hearts was to be found in trusting God. And not only trusting God, but in trusting Jesus himself. In many translations of the Bible, uh, including the English Standard Version, which I use, maybe you use it as well, it includes a semicolon here. Now, what that typically does, it's a, it's a way that the translators are communicating to us that both of these ideas, both of these statements are basically saying the same thing. So, what Jesus is saying here is that just as you have believed in God, you can believe in me. So, Jesus is equating himself with God here. Now, this is the exact reason why each of my, of my three points this morning say, trust Jesus. Now, why is that? Because trusting Jesus is the way that the disciples' hearts can be untroubled. And trusting Jesus is what makes sense of every verse that comes after this. And none of this passage really makes sense unless there is some degree of trust in Jesus. Now, <clears throat> these verses fly into the face of our culture today, do they not? Um, what does our culture constantly tell us about our hearts? They say to, to, to trust your heart, to follow your heart. It's almost pervasive, isn't it? Um, I, I don't think I need to uh, recount or to quote a plethora of Disney movies for you to understand that that's what the culture is telling us. Um, but what do we do when our hearts are unsettled? They say to trust your heart, but what if your heart is un unsettled? Uh, guys, the the unsettled nature of the human heart, if it was ever in question, has been put on display in the past year, has it not? Uh, the numbers in the news related to divorce rates, 
suicide rates, uh, mental health issues since the pandemic, they're staggering. Our hearts are not reliable guides to follow. So here's the truth. Here's the truth that Jesus wants to communicate to us. See, our hearts were never meant to be entrusted. They were meant to be entrusted to the one who made them. Our hearts were meant to be entrusted to God. You see, our hearts are, are not like the receptacles in the wall that we plug our appliances into to get some power. Our hearts are more like the appliances that you plug into the receptacle. Uh, they're only as strong as that which they're plugged into. You see, Jesus is not some exterior source of power that points us back to our hearts as if we can find any kind of strength there. Jesus is the only source of power. Only Jesus has the settling power over our hearts. Okay, so we've noted why the disciples have been troubled. And we've seen how trusting Jesus is the only way to really calm our hearts. But in order to do justice to this verse, verse 1, we must note that the disciples are not the only ones in a troubled state here. Uh, Remember, Jesus is looking ahead to the cross at this point in time. Now, the text prior to this passage that we're in uh, tells us some things about Jesus' attitude during this time. Consider John 12, uh, verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. He goes on and says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus, his soul is troubled. Other translations here say that his heart is troubled. Uh, Consider another verse, John 13, 21. Uh, The text says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. So Jesus is troubled in his heart or his soul, and he's also troubled in his spirit. And his trouble was such that he's anticipating taking on the weight of sin through a gruesome death on a cross. Now this Jesus, the one who himself is troubled is the one who is communicating to troubled disciples saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, isn't this amazing? Jesus is the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's the only one, or he is the one who is deeply troubled because he knows that the cross awaits him. Yet, when the disciples are on the brink of their utter collapse, he's the one who's comforting their hearts. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you know that this is the Savior that you have as well? This Jesus was troubled for the sake of your sin, and yet he continually invites you to cast your troubles on him. You can trust Jesus to calm your heart. That's number one. And number two, trust Jesus to prepare your place trust Jesus to prepare your place. We see this in verses 2 and 3. I'll pick up Jesus' words where we left off. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be 
also. Now, friends, here Jesus turns his attention away from uh, the hearts of the disciples to the place that he is preparing for them. Um, I started uh, dating my wife now in the spring of 2017. Uh, We were both in Georgia at the time, and by God's grace, I was able to marry this wonderful woman. It's been a a great blessing. Uh, So we're coming up on two years of marriage this summer. And in the summer of 2018, I moved to Boston to begin serving at Beacon. So if you can keep track of the timetable here, I moved to Boston three years ago, got married two years ago, and so my wife spent the, myself and my wife spent the majority of 2018 in two different states. Uh, I was here, she was in Georgia at the time. This is before we got married. Um, and when we got engaged, I knew that I had to begin looking for a place for us to live when we came up here. And so to bring this to bear on the text, uh, what kind of fiance would I have been if I never prepared a place for us to move when she arrived? probably pretty crappy, right? Um, What kind of reflection of a husband would I have been to her? Uh, I I probably, or I would have, I certainly would have completely completely neglected my responsibility to love and to care for my wife. Or consider this. What if uh, we got engaged to be married, I left from Georgia, came up to Boston, and I never returned to marry my wife? I would have completely made void any argument I had to say that I loved her. Uh, My promise would have been a complete fraud. Now, uh, in this text, uh, in these verses, uh, there's some parallels here, although I'm not the parallel to draw to Jesus. I'm just drawing uh, similarities. Uh, Relational intimacy between Jesus and his disciples do play a surprising role. Uh, In a time of troubled hearts, Jesus is supplying uh, his disciples with encouragement and comfort, and Jesus is beginning with a description of the place that he's preparing. So, Jesus says here, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, when Jesus says my Father's house, what he's referring to is heaven. Now, when we talk about heaven, we have all kinds of questions, right? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a place of intrigue. We're kind of interested at in what's going on there. Uh, you might ask, how many people are in heaven? Or uh, what is it like to talk to an angel? Or you might say, um, will we be able to eat Chick-fil-A in heaven? Uh, I think that would be an awesome thing. Uh, but Jesus' priority is a little bit different when he's talking about heaven. Uh, he's actually more concerned about the rooms, uh, in the Greek text of this, uh, of this verse, the emphasis is not necessarily on the Father's house, but it's on the many rooms that are in the Father's house. So what Jesus is saying is that when he's talking about heaven, he's not saying, oh, there's, there's enough room for everyone in heaven. There's an adequate amount of space. What Jesus is shouting to us is that there is an abundance of space in heaven. Now, when a person comes to John 14, I know that often what people think about is the exclusivity of Christ. Now, that is certainly uh, true in some senses. But in another sense, there is a sense in which this passage is wonderfully inclusive. 2 Peter uh, 3.9 kind of illustrates this. This is the Apostle Peter who 
is about to deny Jesus. Later on, he looks back and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And here's what he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What this means for us, guys, is that if you have believed in Jesus, there is more than enough space in heaven for you. If you're sitting here today worried about whether or not you're going to make it, Jesus says there's more than enough room for you here. Now, I know this church is one that loves their community. You guys are talking about going and serving at River Day or whatever you call that. Um, uh, you know, why do we do things like this? Why do we do community outreaches? Why do we do service projects or movie events or soccer camps or basketball camp? Anybody here like basketball? Um, I just, we, our church did a basketball camp last week and it was amazing. Um, but why do we do things like that? Uh, what we're hoping to do is to reflect the heart of Jesus to our neighbors. That's why we're out in our communities, loving our neighbors and, and serving them in tangible ways, because they need to know that Jesus opens wide his doors and welcomes any who would want to come to him. That's Jesus' desire for them to know that. What we can say is that really anybody can get in here and serve in the church and be part of the church. That's open to everyone. This is why we go into the world and share the love of Jesus and the gospel message because there are many rooms in heaven. This is a beautifully inclusive verse here. Okay, Jesus goes on and he continues his argument in the form of a question. He says, uh, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Now, this is what Jesus is saying here. He's continuing his argument. He says, because there are many rooms in my father's house, I will go to prepare a place for you. Now, this might be confusing to some. It might sound kind of like, well, if what I said is true, that's what I told you. So therefore, it's true. Which, you know, how does that help his argument at all? Well, uh, let's, let's look at this a slightly different way. This is more what Jesus is trying to say. Um, he's making an argument that he is the one who is going to open up heaven for them by laying down his life. That's Jesus' argument with this question. Now, if you are listening to me carefully, you might ask Dylan, that is not what the Bible is saying there. I don't see anywhere where it says that Jesus is laying down his life for me. But remember, this section is telling us about the significance of Jesus' departure before it actually happens. So the cross at this point in time is looming on the horizon. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will happen there. Now, this gives us a little bit of insight into where Jesus is going and the kind of preparations that he is making. Now, a key interpretive phrase that he gives here in this verse is where he says, I go. In the Gospels, Jesus is always going somewhere. He has a destination. You see this all over the place. And I could point to all over the place in the Gospel of John. I'm just going to point in two places just to kind of illustrate that I'm being trustworthy to you today. Um, John 13, 33 says, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus is going somewhere. Uh, John 13, verse 3 uh, 
It says this, Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, he was going back to God and he rose from supper. So Jesus is going somewhere. He's going to prepare a place. Okay, Jesus continues with his argument here. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Jesus is making a promise here. Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's saying, I will come again. I will take you to myself. Now, to failing disciples, Jesus is offering them assurance that their eternity is secure. Their faith under their power might falter, but their faith under his power will flourish and will make it to the end. Now, I wonder if there are some of us in here today who feel like failures. You might even describe yourself that way. Well, I just want to encourage you, and we can praise God together because God's salvation is not based on our perfection. Jesus has perfectly accomplished his mission of salvation to prepare our place, not by our power, but because of his power. So if you feel like you are a failure today, trust that Jesus has prepared a place for you. Now, earlier I mentioned that this passage also mentions something of relational intimacy uh, and that it does play a strong role. So I just want to highlight this here briefly. Uh, Look at the language that Jesus uses. He says, I will take you to myself, and where I am, you will be also. Now, this is intimate language, and some of us might shy away from it because it seems mushy or something like that. Um, But I just want to highlight this fact to you. When Jesus speaks in this kind of language, the truth is that no one has ever loved you as much as Jesus does. And no one wants eternal happiness for you more than Jesus does. He says so himself, John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus has loved you to the extent that he laid down his life for you. If you are here this morning and you have never trusted Jesus, and you might have just stumbled your way in here for some reason, but if that's you today, will you trust Christ? Today, you can put all of your troubles on Jesus and be rid of them forever and be freed from them forever. So by trusting in Jesus, your heart can be calmed and your place with him can be prepared. Number two, okay. Now number three, my my final point this morning, uh, trust Jesus as your only way to God. Trust Jesus as your only way to God. This is verses four through seven. I'll read them again for us. And you know the way to where I am going. And Jesus And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, Jesus says here, continuing from verse 3, he says, and you know the way to where I am going. Here, Jesus is offering more assurance to the, the, the disciples at this point. He's saying, you have known me, therefore you already know the way to God. Now, this statement serves, serves as kind of a transition uh, point, and he's transitioning to a direct interaction with Thomas here. And the interaction that we see is based on Jesus being the only way to God. So let's go to Thomas in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Uh, I want to say uh, here that Thomas is like many of us. Uh, he has a hard time trusting that Jesus has, that what Jesus has told him is enough. Uh, he wants all of his questions answered, and he wants to be perfectly clear with what's going on. Uh, so we can find ourselves in Thomas's shoes, can't we? I can find myself there. Um, it's worth noting here as well that it's not just Thomas who's speaking. Um, he's also speaking on behalf of the other disciples as well. Notice he says, we, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So what is Thomas asking here? So he says, we don't know where you are going. Uh, Thomas does not love ambiguity at all. Uh, he wants an unambiguous destination for where he's going. Uh, for without such a destination, how can anyone meaningfully know the route to get there. It would be like, hey, uh, let's go out to lunch. You know the way to get there. And you would be like, Dylan, you sound a bit crazy. I don't even know where we're going. And you told me that I know the way. Thomas is a little bit confused. So the interaction kind of goes like this. Uh, Jesus says, you know the way, uh, and you do not need to know where it leads. He says, you already know the way. And Thomas responds, if we don't know the destination, how can we know the way? But uh, didn't Jesus already say the destination to where he was going in verses 2 and 3? Uh, and in verse 4, he actually, verses 2 and 3, he said the destination was the Lord's, the, his father's house. Uh, in verse 4, he actually advised the disciples that they already knew the way. Okay, so this can get a little bit confusing. But what this is showing is that Thomas and the other disciples have not fully come to grips with what Jesus has said. Uh, this apprehensiveness, this slight doubt in Thomas provides the context. This is important. This provides the context for one of the most beautiful and succinct statements about Jesus in all of the Bible. So it opens up here. Jesus responds, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this passage, in this verse, uh, the way is the primary theme, and it follows that the truth and the life support that Jesus is the way. So, uh, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. So you might ask, how is Jesus the truth of God? Well, John has answered it in many ways up until this point, but just to say a few. He reveals the Father. Uh, Jesus himself embodies the supreme revelation of God. He does and says everything that the Father gives him to do and say. Uh, 
in the very first chapter of John, describes Jesus as the Word made flesh. So if we ever were wondered what truth is, the Bible's uh, practically shouting at us, saying, look at Jesus. So how is Jesus the life of God? Well, he is the one who has life in himself. He alone is the one who gives eternal life to the spiritually dead. So if we ever wondered where, what life is, the Bible insists that we have to look at Jesus. So, since Jesus is the truth and he is the life, it follows that Jesus is also the way to God. Jesus is the road that leads to the Father's heavenly house. Now, here we have what could be considered the beautiful exclusivity of Christ. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, This means that in Jesus' day and in John's day, the, the text that we're actually reading today, and in our day, the test of whether or not anyone really knows who God is is if they have responded to the truth of God and the life of God that is embodied in Jesus Christ. That's the test of whether or not someone has really experienced God. Now, John is very intentional with his language here. It's it's, uh, significant to note that he uses definite articles when he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he continues on and he follows it up with another definitive statement, and he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the difference here between what John 14, 6 is saying and what our world says is that is basically the difference between these two things. It's the difference between us getting in the driver's seat and thinking we know the way to God and we're going to determine the route to get there. The other way is to hop in the backseat and practically be driven to God. And that's what Jesus does for us. Or maybe I could put it this way. There are two different, two very different paths and approaches to thinking about God, okay? Uh, Two very different paths. The first way is what you might could call a mountainous cliff. Uh, You're going to a cliff top. You're going down a path. It's slippery and wet. Um, Maybe there's a blizzard going on. Uh, Maybe us New Englanders would call it Mount Washington or something like that. It's hard to get there, right? Unless you have a fancy sticker on your car that says, I made it there. Um, This is one path. Uh, So think about this. This is the path of thinking about God by our own brain power, using our own minds. So we can look at the world and wonder how everything that we see came to be. So we can make sense of God as one who simply created everything, So God then is nothing more than the uncaused creator. Who God essentially is, if we see him basically in this way, is he's just the one in charge. Now, uh, we Christians, we do uh, affirm this. Uh, We do not deny God's might in any way, but we confess that this is not enough to know about God. Uh, Consider this, what kind of salvation would we have if that's all that we knew God to be? All we knew that God was that he was a ruler. So if we broke the rules, uh, the only option is just to, to forgive you and to treat you as if you didn't keep the rules. Uh, what kind of salvation is that? 
Um, there's certainly no love involved in that kind of relationship with God. Uh, now, this kind of path sounds more like uh, some of these New England roads that I drove coming over here this morning. Maybe you did too. Um, another way that this kind of path can be experienced is uh, we might look at life and consider uh, how is life best lived in this world? Um, we might even consider Jesus' life. We'll look at Jesus and say, oh, he seemed to know the key to love. He taught very good things. Um, so we might begin to follow Jesus as an example. Um, so essentially, Jesus is uh, the backdrop. Maybe you might even come to church and live in an entire atmosphere where you're just surrounded by people who know Jesus. Uh, now, Christians, we do believe that uh, becoming like Jesus is important. Uh, but if Jesus is simply a moral example to follow, what happens when we mess up? Uh, Jesus is not simply a, a way of life to follow. But what's important in this passage is to see that Jesus himself is the way to God. It's not something that we do, something that we uh, follow in his footsteps and follow him in perfection. That would be a salvation by works. That would not be a salvation by God's grace at all. So, okay, so that's both uh, two paths that are just messy. Okay, you're not going to arrive at God that way. Another way you could think about it, the second way to think about God. Uh, this is something that you would consider a brightly lit and smoothly paved path. Uh, and this is how the Bible speaks about God and about Jesus. God is primarily a father, and Jesus is primarily his son. Jesus reveals the Father by being the way, the truth, and the life for us. And in this way, we can all be welcomed into the Father's house because it's not based on our works, but based on Jesus' works. Jesus is the perfect son that followed God. We are the imperfect sons who have imperfectly followed God. So here, what we can see in this better path, this smooth path, is the flip side of verse 6. It becomes clear. Basically, the flip side of verse 6 is that anyone who comes to the Father can do so through Christ. And that's why we can trust Jesus to be the only way to God. Now, I opened up this morning uh, with a quote from the Renaissance period. And I have another one for you that illustrates this point, that Jesus himself is really the only way to God. Uh, this is from Thomas uh, Kempis. He lived during the same time period as Desiderius Erasmus. Now listen to his words here. This is a sonnet. Now I'm no poet, but he is. So uh, there's some rich truth about God here. He says, <clears throat> as if Jesus is speaking, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path, to blaze a trail, that you may simply follow in my tracks or pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. How can you, the sons of my night, look on me and construe my way as just a road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, and stark rejection draped in agony." My way to God embraces utmost lost. Your way to God, 
This is important. Your way to God is not my way but me. Each other path is a dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. Now, friends, we can trust that kind of Jesus because he did go through the cross to accomplish a salvation for us. We can trust that Jesus is the one who can calm our anxious hearts. We can trust Jesus to prepare our place, and we can trust Jesus to be our only way to God. The invitation is open to all of us to continue trusting him or to trust in him for the first time today.